Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. Okay, you join us with Perak Kaf the beginning of the story of Yaakov and Esau and who gets the brachot. And the story so far is that Yitzchak has told Esau to go and hunt some game and bring it back to him, bring it back to Yitzchak so Yitzchak can bless him. And in Pasuk Hay, <coughs> Rivka heard what Yitzchak said to Esau and then in Pasuk Vav, um, Rivka spoke to Yaakov, her son, saying, Behold, um, I have heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, we have no Rashi on that. Um, and what did he say? What did she say that he said? Bring me game, hunted stuff, and make me nice, tasty stuff, and I will eat it, and I will bless uh, you, before my death. Remember from the beginning of the Perak, Yitzchak is worried when he's going to die, maybe I'm going to die soon, that's why I need to give you the blessing now. So Rashi just comments on the words, Lifnei Hashem, before Hashem, in the context of Yitzchak says, I will bless you before Hashem, says Rashi, with his permission, that he will agree to my hand. So why does Rashi have to say that? And I think the answer is because everything is Lifnei Hashem. What does it mean to say such an act happens Lifnei Hashem? Everything in the entire universe is Lifnei Hashem. I'm reminded of the Rashi in Pasha Shalach so I don't have the reference, but the Maraglim died in a plague before Hashem. And Rashi there says it was a particularly grotesque plague. I won't go into details. It involved extended tongues and worms and going into stomachs. Really not nice. Um, and it seems that Rashi is saying that because it wasn't just a Magefa. It was a Magefa Lifnei Hashem. So what does that mean? Because everything that happens is Lifnei Hashem. So there, Rashi explains, it was a particularly wondrous, miraculous, God-directed type of Magefa, type of plague. So here also, there's no plague going on. The connection, the reason I mentioned that, Pasuk and Shalachacha, because I think, again, Rashi feels the need to explain Lifnei Hashem, because otherwise there's no, there's no kiem, there's no fulfillment of what Lifnei Hashem means. So what does it mean, Lifnei Hashem, here? It means Burushoto, with his permission. Shiaskim al that Yitzchak says that he will agree to my what, what I'm doing. Now, by the way, this is reported speech. This is Rivka saying what she heard Yitzchak say. And if we go back to what Yitzchak actually said, he didn't say that. Um, in Pasuk Dalad, he said, make me nice delicacies, which I love, and bring them to me, and I will eat. In order that my soul will bless you before I die. So in Pasuk Dalad, that was his exact words. In Pasuk Zion, Rivka reports his words slightly differently. And in particular, the last four words, 
ואברכך לפני השם לפני מותי. So it could be that this is just Rivka's interpretation, simple. Or it could be, we can go a little bit more precise. What has Rivka added and what has Rivka subtracted? And maybe we can say they're the same thing. She's added the Lifnei Hashem, because Yitzhak didn't say that. What has she subtracted? Nafshi. Nafshi, very good. She does, Yitzhak said, my soul will bless you. And Rivka's taken that out. So maybe that Rivka's interpretation of my soul, what is the soul doing? The soul is what's connected directly to Hashem more than the rest of us. So when Yitzhak says, my soul will bless you, Rivka, as it were, hears and repeats, I will bless you, Lifnei Hashem. Hashem will agree to what I would say. Okay, then Rivka continues and says to Yaakov, And now, my son, Shema Bakoli, listen to my voice. What I am commanding you. No Rashi on that, but there's lots of Rashi on the next Pasuk, Pasuk Tet. Lech na el hadson, go please to the flock. V'kach li misham, and take for me from there. Shnei kedaye izim, two goats, tovim, nice ones, good ones. V'ase otam matamim, and I will make them into tasty things. La avicha, for your father, ka'asher ohev, that he loves. Okay, the first Rashi is on the words v'kach li. Says Rashi, Mishali Haim, they are mine. The Ainam Gazel, and these two goats that I'm asking you to take are not robbery. Why not? Shekach Katav La Yitzchak Bekutubata, because Yitzchak wrote for her in his Ketuba when he married her, Litol Shnei Gedaya Izim Bakol Yom, that she will take two goats every day. Now, this is very strange. And, and I don't have an explanation for some of the strangeness, but there is one part that I can discuss. But let, before we get into the strangeness, let's see what is the problem for Rashi. What word is Rashi explaining? I think, anyone like to volunteer? Lee. Ah, oh, very good. I think he's explaining the word Lee, because take for me implies take and I'm going to eat them. And Rivka is not going to eat them. She's going to prepare them for Yitzchak to eat. Now, you could say that's not really a very strong question because take for me, take so I can use them because I'm the one who's going to be doing the cooking. But I, I, I think that's not how Rashi sees it. Rashi would say, Kahli, take for me means I'm going to eat them unless Rashi can find an inter- alternative interpretation. And he does. He says, Li means Mushali. Mushali, take from mine. So Li is understood as Mushali. Now, why are they mine? Answer, and this is this strange thing that it has in her ketubah that they will get two goats every day. Uh, this is not a usual thing to put in a ketubah. I, I, this is not usual, and I do not, I didn't come across, maybe I didn't look hard enough, an explanation of why anyone should imagine that Yitzchak should put this in the ketubah. Could it, could it be like, um, you know, how like the husband has like support? So could it be like, Instead of like a money thing, it's like because he was like a farmer, he had goats, and so like he's like supporting through like instead of like money. Yeah, it could be. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's certainly true that the ketubah is a genuine document where he promises to support her in lots of various ways. And although today we Ashkenazim anyway use a very standard formula without any deviation, in theory one can put all sorts of things into the ketubah. Some Sephardim do. 
And yes, one of the things is that he will support her. It's still a little bit strange that he will support her through the provision of two goats a day. It's quite a lot of goat, mm -hmm. right? It's a lot of goat. Um, but I've got, so I, I can't really answer that question. Um, but I've got a different question which I can answer. So this might seem a bit strange, um, especially to our modern sensitivities, that what's the Havamina? In other words, if this hadn't been written in the Ketubah, does that mean she can't take food from the larder, from the, from the pantry, and start cooking it for dinner? Um, okay, we are going to be a bit gendered here. We're going to assume that she does the cooking in the house. So every time she does the cooking, if it hadn't been for this detail in the Ketubah, would she have to ask permission from Yitzchak to say, um, I don't own your, your, your pizza. Um, can you please let me have some pizza so I can cook the family dinner? The answer is, there's a difference in this case. The answer to the, the, my question is absolutely not. She can cook whatever she wants for dinner. And she doesn't need to own the food before she cooks it. It's, she's cooking for the family. This meal is different. Because Yitzchak has already indicated he doesn't want her to cook tonight. Because he's ordered takeout. Thank you, I worked on that line. How is he ordered takeout? He's ordered from Esau. So this meal that she's cooking for Yitzchak is not according to Yitzchak's wishes. So therefore, um, I forget who says this. I'm sorry, it's not me. Therefore, in this particular case, she would need permission to take the food if it weren't her food already. So that's why we can say that in this particular case, she needs the fact that, or Rashi needs to tell us, or the Chumash needs to tell us through the word Lee, that actually these goats belong to her and she doesn't need permission to take them. Okay, the next Rashi on the word Shnei Gedei Izim, two goats. The Chi Shnei Gedei Izim Haya Ma'achal Shal Yitzchak. And would it be that two goats was the food of Yitzchak? One was offered for the Korban Pesach. And the other was made into the delicacies. Says, says Rashi, this comes from the Pekeh de Rebbe So what does this remind us of? A Rashi we saw not long ago. That, what day was this? How do we know it's Pesach? It was Erev Pesach to be precise. Or it was going to be Pesach in the evening. How do we know it was Erev Pesach? Because it was Yitzchak's birthday. And because Yitzchak said, I don't know when I'm going to die. I don't know if I'm going to die five years before my mother or five years before my father or after each of them. But as Rashi said, that day he became um, 60, sorry, 123. And we know from the story of the Malachim visiting Abraham and predicting the birth of Yitzchak. And on that same day, they went to Saddam where Lot was making matzahs that the birth of Yitzchak, which was one year, but the prediction was one year before the actual birth, was on Pesach. So it all fits. It's actually very nice that it all fits. So the meal that Yitzchak is going to have is actually a sort of prototype Seder without some of the uh, extra bits, but it's going to be a Korban Pesach and the other. Now, two things to say about this Pesach bit. First of all, just out of interest, Rashi says this is from the Pirkei de Rebeliezer. If you look in the Pirkei de Rebeliezer, it actually says, one goat keneged Pesach and one goat keneged something else, like corresponding to. So it sounds like there's a slight change of nuance. Maybe Rashi had a different Yerusha, a different text to us. Rashi says it was mamish the Korban Pesach. The Pekad Rebeliezer says it was corresponding to the Korban Pesach. But Rashi seems to be saying that the other kept Pesach 
before Pesach. And that fits nicely, by the way, because we understand Pesach to be a day of cosmic significance. It's a day when um, the mighty fall and the apparently weak rise up. It's a day of great um, uh, significance for the Jewish people. Lots of things happened on Pesach after Yitzhak Mitzrayim and even before. And of course, what's happening on this day is that the younger son is going to triumph over the older son, which matches very nicely with Makkah Bechorah, which is going to take place on exactly the same day, more or less at the same time. Um, the triumph of worth over birth. Okay, why? what is Rashi explaining? Uh, I think, in the Mephoshim that I saw, think that Rashi is explaining one word in particular, and the word shnei, two. It's not just that, as I said a moment ago, two goats is a lot of goats for one old man to eat. That's not the point, because it, then, then the Torah could have just said, bring goats. But the fact that it said dafka two goats, not one goat, not three goats, not many goats, but dafka two goats, sound like there's a significance in the two goat thing. By the way, um, what's the other sacrifice that is brought with the Korban Pesach? It's called the Korban Chagiga. There's, it's actually a special type of Chagiga. There's a Chagiga that you bring to the Bet Mikdash during each festival. But there's also the Chagiga Yudalad, an extra Chagiga, an extra sacrifice that was brought on the 14th at the same time as the Korban Pesach. And the purpose of that was to be eaten prior to eating the Korban Pesach. Because there's a part of the details of how we eat the Korban Pesach is al hasoba. We eat the Korban Pesach when we're already satisfied. Not completely stuffed, um, but leaving a bit of room for the Korban Pesach. Now, how do we see this on our Seder? Because that's exactly what applies to the Afikoman. The Afikoman should be eaten when you're well satiated, but you've got a little bit of room left. Yeah, it's quite hard to balance, <laughs> to get the calculation just right. Um, so it makes sense, although Rashi doesn't say it explicitly, that one would be the Korban Chagiga to fill you up, and then the other would be the Korban Pesach. Okay, yes? What about the fact that the Korban Pesach is a lamb and it's in a goat? Ah, good question. Actually, it's a good question, but it's an easy answer. It's a lamb or a goat. Okay. If you look carefully in Peret Yudbet of Shemot, it's a lamb or a goat. We, often, we always have this image of the fluffy lambs, yeah. but some of them would be not so fluffy goats. Okay? <laughs> yes? If you eat the Koran Pesach after you shekhed it, why do you then force me back to the meal? Why do you what? Why do you force me the second one to the meal? Like, don't you eat the Koran Pesach and that kind of constitutes your meal? Um, uh, no. Yes and no. The no bit is because it has to be eaten a la solva. It has to be eaten when you're already satisfied. Um, Don't ask me why, because right now I, I, I'm, I'm not sure what the message of that is, but that's a din in the common vessel. It's also the case that, um, I keep saying two goats is a lot of goats and one lamb is a lot of lamb. I actually once had a discussion with a butcher about how many people would eat from one lamb. And he reckoned it's about, wait for it, 200. In other words, the communal seder that some shuls put on with lots of families together was probably closer to the original model than our one family per seder model. But it's also the case that you only have to eat a kazayas of the Korban Pesach. And there might be a lot of people at your seder and each person gets one kazayas, which is not much of a meal. So even though you have to eat a kazayas of the Korban Pesach, um, and you do, and uh, it's, uh, it's a mitzvah, uh, compulsory mitzvah, mitzvah per se, on all Jews to eat. 
might be an interesting problem for vegetarians when that time comes, but we'll deal with that <laughs> at the time. Um, it might only be a small portion. And that's why another reason why you need more to the meal. Okay. The last comment of Rashi is on Rivka's last two words of the Pasuk. So make matamim la'avicha ka'asher ahev, as he likes, as he loves. Make that nice food for your father. I will make that nice food for your father, which he loves. Says Rashi, ka'asher ahev, kitam hagedi kitam hatsvi. The taste of goat is like the taste of deer. So deer is what he was hunting. Deer is what you hunt. And apparently, says Rashi, the taste of the goat, which he's cooking, and the taste of the deer, which, he's, which Yitzchak is expecting, are similar. And that's how the subterfuge could take place. What I want to say is particularly interesting is why Rashi brings that, this word, this idea, on those two words. It might have made more sense um, on the words when, when Rivka says, go and get goats. Then Rashi could have said, ah, she's very clever because the taste of goat is like the taste of deer. But Rashi doesn't say it there. He says it on the words, ka'asher ahev. And I think the reason for that is, the point that Rashi's making is not uh, an objective fact that goats taste like deer, but they taste like deer to Yitzchak. The, the purpose is not to get goats. The purpose is to get something which Yitzchak is going to want. And that's why Rashi's comment on the words ka'asher You know what he loves? He loves deer or something tasting like deer. So this will achieve the objective. So the point, what I'm trying to say is, the point that Rashi's making is not to tell you that goats, goats taste like deer, but to tell you that goats taste like deer to Yitzchak. Because it's, that's crucial. It's Yitzchak who is ordered the food. Yitzchak's going to eat the food and then give the blessing. And that's why Yitzchak must get the taste that he loves. And so what do we say about the taste that he loves? Kitam hagedi, kitam hatsubi. So then what happens? Rivka continues. Bring, you will bring to your father and he will eat. In order that he will bless you. Before his death. Now Rashi. Pasuk Yud Aleph. Vayome Yaakov el Rivka imo. Yaakov said to Rivka, his mother, Haim Esav Achi Ish Tsair. Rashid can explain it, but um, it means a man of hair. The Anochi Ish Chalak, and I am a smooth man. In other words, Esav is much more hair suits than I am. And well, in the next passage, he's going to say precisely what he's worried about. I'm, I must, this is completely off topic, but I must chuckle here. Um, there is a famous English comedian called Alan Bennett. And Alan Bennett is famous for his monologue. Well, he's still alive, but he's been going for 40 years. And he's famous for his uh, lots of things, including his monologues. And he did a great impersonation of a Church of England priest giving a sermon. And he starts in this very sort of old formal English way by quoting a verse. And that's the start of his sermon. And then the sermon has got nothing to do with the verse at all. And this is the verse that he quoted. My brother Esau is an hairy man, but I am a smooth man. And whenever I hear those words, I think of that monologue. <laughs> Sorry for that waste of time. Yes. Um, that's the previous passage. Yes. Um, even though there is a Rashi, but it says about Avor and Barabor, usually thought above. Is that something? Because normally Rashi is caught seemingly, whenever I don't know the answer to it. But it's normally a comment of Rashi where he mentions why there is above lacking. 
Um, I don't know the answer. Um, I, I don't. I would take issue with your comment that every time a word which is either spelt Malay or spelt Faser, I don't think Rashi always comments on it. Um, I think he would, if I can make a general rule, comment when it's particularly exceptional. And I think above here or replaced by a kubitz there is not so exceptional. That's the best I can do. Okay. Um, Rashi on the words ish sa'ir says bal se'ar, a possessor of hair. Now, why does Rashi have to say this? Um, so I'll give you two possibilities. Uh, the first is ish is a noun, which when ish is in the construct state, you don't notice a difference because ish means man and ish means man of. So ear is not an adjective. So it's not a hairy man. It's a noun. It means hair. So how can ish sa'ir, literally man hair, mean anything? So Rashi replaces ish by bal. And he also he replaces the ear by se'ar without the yud to make it clearer. So ba'al means a possessor of. So Rashi basically is saying ish here in this passage means man of. He replaces ish by bal to make that very clear. And he also explains how the word se'ir can be a descriptive term, even though it's not an adjective, it's a noun. How can, it be a, how can a noun be a descriptor? If it's a man of hair. So ish se'ir means man of hair, which you wouldn't have actually got just looking at the words. Now, there are some commentators of Rashi who say that Rashi's got a different problem to tell you what the word se'ir means, because you might think the word se'ir means goat even though we translated it as Gedi-Azim. I mean, Russia, the, the Chumash has used Gedi-Azim in the last few Pesukim, but Seir also means goat. Uh, and I, I found it quite interesting that I came across the Sefer Zikaron, which is a quite old parish in Rashi, who quoted the idea that says, that of others who say Rashi is telling you it doesn't mean goat, and said that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to think that Rashi is telling you it doesn't mean goat. Because if that's the case, every single time you get a word with two meanings, of which there are many in the Chumash, Rashi would have to rush out and tell you it doesn't mean this, it doesn't mean that, and Rashi certainly doesn't do that. And it's obvious when Yaakov says there's a problem here, Esau is an ish sa'ir, and I am a ish chalak. He doesn't refer to Esau being a possessor of goats. That's not the problem that Yaakov is identifying. So says the Sefer Zikaron, it cannot be that Rashi is worried that you might think it means goat, because obviously it doesn't, and that's not what Rashi does. Having said that, there are other serious Mephoshim who say that is what Rashi's doing. Okay, let's go on to Pasuk Yudbet. Yes? How would it sound if it was hairy as an adjective rather than a I don't know. Um, I'm going to go way on a limb here, and... Um, uh, I may be completely wrong. There are certain nouns which then lead to adjectives. Um, hachma is the noun. Hacham is an adjective. Um, and there are a few words that do that. I don't think, certainly with a relatively limited vocabulary, which classical Hebrew is, the words in the Tanakh, um, I don't think you can do that like whenever you feel like it, which leads me on to say, I think there might be no such adjective in classical Hebrew. To say hairy. Yeah, but I may be wrong. Okay, in the next passage, we have another Rashi telling you what the word means, but there might be some more to it of that as well. It continues Yaakov, Yaakov's concern. Ulai, you avi. 
maybe my father will, well, Rashi's going to tell us what that means. And I will be in his eyes like a deceiver. And he will, I will bring on me a curse of the low bracha and not a blessing. So he's saying to his mother, who's telling him to carry out this deception, that I'm likely to be found out because all Yitzhak will have to do is touch me and he will find out that I am smooth and he will realize I'm not my brother Esau, who is all hairy. And that's what Rashi says when uh, on the words, And that is a quote from Devarim Kaf Chet Pasuk Kaf Tet which is in the Tokacha in Kitavo, where things will be so bad and it will be so dark that everyone will be groping, groping around because they can't see what's going on. Kamo mamashesh patsaharayim, like a blind man gropes it at noon. Rashi there actually in, in Kitavo tells you why Dafka at noon, because you might have thought for a blind man, it won't make any time of difference, but it won't make difference what time of day it is. But at noon, it's even worse because normally other people could see him and uh, help him. But things will be so bad that even in the middle of the day, when people can see him, the blind man will be groping, will, will not uh, know where, where he's going. Uh, and that's what the Pasuk means. So Rashi says, Yomashoni, um, sorry, Yomushoni, is from the word Mamashesh. Interestingly, with a doubled shin, the root is Mem Shin Shin, which means to grope or to touch. Um, and in our Pasuk, it doesn't have a doubled shin, but what does it have to cover that? It has a dagesh in the shin to cover the two shins. What else might you have thought it? Yeah, it's good. <laughs> what else might you have thought it meant? Lo yamush hatorah mepicha yamamalayla, which means to leave. So Rashi's telling you it's not that. It's not the root mem shin. It's the root mem shin shin, which is a different root. So Rashi is telling you what the word means, and by extension, telling you what Yaakov is worried about. He's worried that his father will like, rope him, feel him, touch him, will do. He, that, that's, that's what he's worried will, will happen. Just by the way, and I, this is just a, something that occurred to me, and I didn't actually see anybody say this, but I'm sure somebody did. There's a very interesting sort of a significance in the quote that Rashi brings, because it's talking about a blind man will grope at noon. And who is blind? And Yitzhak's also blind. So maybe it's coincidence but probably not. That Rashi says, Yumusheni in the Pasuk is referring to Yitzchak, who will feel because he is blind. And Rashi brings a Pasuk to prove what the word means, which happens to refer to a blind man feeling his way. Coincidence? I don't know. So now we have one, two, three psukim without Rashi, which we will go through them. The Tomer Lo Imo. So, let me go back. Uh, Yaakov said, this is not a good idea because he will find out that I'm deceiving him. The Haveti alike, this is back to your bet, I will bring on me a curse and not a blessing. Says Rivka, his mother said to him, on me will be your curse, Bani, my son. But listen to my voice, and go and get for me what I told you. Now, I just want to share with you, this is not Rashi, and I normally don't bring in not Rashi, but this is something um, I, I notice every year, uh, and I do want to share with you. Yaakov says, 
I'm worried. This is going to be a disaster. I'm going to get a curse. Klalala. And she, Rivka, says, don't worry. Alai kilatcha. Your curse will be on me. If you jump, you've all got Rasha, to Membet Lamadvav. Membet Lamadvav. This is the moment which for Yaakov is the lowest point of the Yosef story. Um, Yosef has disappeared. The brothers have gone down to Egypt looking for food and they've come back and they've said, number one, Shimon's kept as a hostage. And number two, we can only go back if we bring Binyamin with us. And this is the worst thing for Yaakov. And Biyome Alehem Yaakov Avihem. Yaakov said to them, uh, their, their father said to them, Oti Shikaltem, you're killing me, basically. Yosef Eneno, for Shimon Eneno, for Ed Binyamin Tikahu. Yosef's missing. Shimon's missing. Binyamin, you want to take? Alai Hayu Kulana. It's all come on me. And I just wonder if there's a deliberate comparison between the Alai here that we just read in Membet Lamadvab and the Alai that Rivka says. Rivka says, don't worry, if there's a curse, it'll be a lie. It'll be on me, Rivka. And later on, maybe I'd just like to suggest that Yaakov saying when his world has fallen apart, when his family is being like knocked off one by one, he says, a lie. Didn't go on to you, Rami. It's all come on me, just like I feared. And it's actually interesting because uh, Rivka, uh, it's terrible for Rivka because at the end of the story, she sends Yaakov off and she never sees him again. So that's a curse for her but Yaakov was the one who never had peace for the rest of his life from that day on from this from this particular day he never had peace he's he's right he, he's uh, um in um well, until the very last end of late days of his life he has to go to um Lavan's house which is terrible and Lavan cheats him and tricks him and, and gives him too many wives and that results in the fracturing of his children and then one of his children is sold into slavery his favorite child uh, and, and then they're all missing only in his last years of his life, um, when he's in Egypt and he's with Yosef and he's with Abraham and Manasseh, uh, are things better for him. But even that, I suppose, is not good because he's in Egypt, not where he should be. So his life was really, really bad. He, he originated Marib, which is what we play, pray in the dark when things are looking not so good, not so bright. That's Marib, that's Yaakov. So Yaakov did indeed suffer terribly. Now, I'm not able to say that one was a consequence of the other, but I can say that when Rivka says, your curse will be on me he got he got a share of it for sure and maybe there's little remez in that word a lie which he says later on okay back to the Chumash and back to the Rashi but there's no Rashi and the Gimel on Yudalad he went and he took and he brought to his mother and his mother made tasty things as his father loves and Rivka took the clothes of Esav, her older son, Machamudot. Now, Machamudot is what, sorry, Hamachamudot is what Rashi is going to talk about. What does Hachamudot mean? Before Rashi, we might have thought it meant treasured, delighted. Um, the Arabic word from which we get the name Muhammad uh, comes from the same root. Um, so these clothes, hachamudot, asher itah babayit, which were with her in the house, the talbeish et Yaakov bana hakatan, and she 
dressed Yaakov, her younger son. Now, Rashi has two pshotim uh, on chachamudot. Says Rashi, hanakiyot. It means clean. Ketargumo dachiata. As you can see from the targum, which translates chamudot as dachiata. And we know from elsewhere in the, in the targum, but dachiata means clean. Um, it also has sort of echoes of tahor as well, um, like super clean, if you like. Now, why? Uh, what's the significance of Yaakov having clean clothes? What's the significance of Esau having clean clothes um, uh, and Rivka putting the clean clothes on Yaakov? So we know that the one thing we know about Esau is he was very mukbit on Kibbutz Abba'e. And one of the places we know that from is this very posse and this very Rashi. That in order for Yitzchak to, sorry, for Yaakov to dress up as Esau, he has to literally dress up as Esau, and he has to dafka wear Esau's clothes, which were very special, clean, nice clothes, which Esau would wear for serving his father. And it, it, it tells you something. Um, I'm sure we're all very particular about Kibbutz Abraham. I'm sure we all do lots for our parents. I'm not going to ask you, but I wonder how many of us put on our special clothes for our parents. If, if, uh, if a parent says, can you get me a cup of tea? I wonder how many of us say, hang on a minute, I'm just going to rush, get on my Shabbos clothes so I can serve you the cup of tea. Well, Aesop did. So he's better than us. It's a thought. Um, you could say differently. You could say that Aesop is a hunter. He's out there in the field. He comes back sweaty, dirty, bloody. We would probably change our clothes anyway before we go in and serve our parents. But... Uh, it's also an interesting question. Were Yaakov's clothes not clean? Were Yaakov's clothes not special? He didn't go out hunting. He didn't get sweaty and dirty and bloody. Um, but it sounds like Esau's clothes were even cleaner. Okay, that's Rashi's first explanation. Then he says, another explanation. Shachamad otan min nimrod. He, chamod, as in coveted, as in lo tachmod in the Aser de Dibrod, he coveted them from Nimrod. Who's he? Esau. Esau. These are the clothes that were not, not just special as in clean, but special as in really special. They were unique. They were a particular set of clothes. Ah, very good. So the Midrash says, Rashi doesn't spell this out, but the Midrash says that Nimrod stole them from Adam. They were special. Where did Adam get his clothes from? Who was Adam's tailor? Baruch yes. Hashem makes clothes for Adam. The Midrash says that these clothes were very special, not just they belonged to Adam Rishon, Hashem made them, but they were decorated with pictures of animals, and they were therefore very good for hunting because they like drew the animals to you. But let's add, let's, let's look, uh, there's a lot of things to say on this. So there's a backstory here, which the Midrash talks about how Nimrod, who, if you look in Perak Yud, Pasuk Tet, was a gibor tzayid lefnei Hashem, was a mighty hunter before Hashem. Um, and before Hashem there is not a good thing, as Rashi says. Uh, he encouraged people to rebel against Hashem. So where did Nimrod get these clothes from? So as you said, the Midrash says that Nimrod stole them from Adam Arishan. Um, he weren't alive at the same time, but he got them from Adam Arishan. Esau, says the Midrash, got these clothes from Nimrod by killing Nimrod. And the Midrash says that on the day that Esau came in 
uh, tired when he, uh, the day that Yaakov gave him the soup, um, he'd been out busy killing people. Rashi doesn't say this, but the Midrash says that Nimrod was the one he killed that day and he got the clothes. Interestingly enough, Nimrod was the Gibbard Sayyid Lifnei Hashem. And who is Esau? The Ish Sayyid. So he's like inherited Nimrod's mantle, metaphorically, and in fact, literally, because he's now got the clothes that Nimrod had. Although there's a nice ending of the story. Who's wearing the clothes now? Yaakov. So the clothes which HaKadosh Baruch Hu made for Adam Arisham, which were then stolen by Nimrod and stolen from him by Esau, have now come home to Yaakov Avinu. So Yaakov Avinu is going to wear them when, when, when giving the food to Yitzhak Avinu. That is surely what the clothes were intended for all along. Now, yes. Why wasn't Esau wearing those clothes? Because he was out hunting. Isn't there two sets of clothes? Yeah, no, these are not his hunting clothes. I thought these were the to attract the animals, wasn't it? Ah, oh, I see. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, obviously. Yeah. He's not wearing them today. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yes. I, I really, I, I did say, and the Midrash does say, but they were, they attracted animals, but obviously he's not wearing them today. They, they stay in the cupboard and they're special. Um, okay, why do we need two explanations? So... As often, I go to the Maskell of David, who gives me an answer to the question. The problem with the first explanation is he wears clean clothes. So um, the question is so obvious. How is that going to help with the deception? Yitzchak can't see. He can't see the clean clothes. He can't see the cleanliness. Now, if he's going to feel the clothes because they're unique, because they belong to Aesop and they're Dafka Aesop's clothes, and Yitzchak knows that, that makes sense, but that's the second explanation. The first explanation does not say that they are uniquely Aesop's clothes. Now, they probably were. That, that's, they we're not suggesting otherwise. But the particular feature that the Pasuk mentions that makes them so appropriate is because they are, according to Rashi's first explanation, Nikiot, they are clean. But that doesn't really make sense. It's not really going to help with the deception because, as I say, Yitzchak can't see the fact that they're clean clothes. So that, says the muscular David, is the problem with the first explanation. The problem with the second explanation is the words don't quite fit what Rashi wants to say. Shachamad otan min nimrod. He coveted them from nimrod. But so in which case, it's, it's, Yitzhak, sorry, it's Esau doing the coveting. It's Esau doing the hamudim, if you'll pardon the bastardized grammar. But the Pasuk says the clothes are hamudot. So I mean, it sounds like Rashi wants to say they are coveted, but that's not quite what Rashi says. So says the muscular David, the clothes are hamudim, and that's not quite the same as saying hamad otan, that he covered, coveted them. Okay, one more comment of Rashi. It's also quite a well-known one, this, and tells us something about um, Aesop and his domestic arrangements. The clothes were asher ita perbayet, which were with her, Rivka, in the house, says Rashi, Vahalo, Kama Nashim Hayu Lo, behold, he had many wives, and he deposited his clothes with his mother. But rather, he was well acquainted with their deeds, the wives, and he suspected them. Okay. You know the story when uh, a sibling moves out of home, but they leave a cupboard full of clothes. Right? Yeah, you know that? One of my 
sons have still got covered full of clothes in my house and my daughter keeps reminding me of that and um, we're making progress um but can you imagine getting married moving out of home and still leaving your best clothes in your mother's house and having to go back to your mother's house every time you want to put on your best clothes it's it's rare it's it's unusual and rashi thinks it's unusual and that's why rashi makes the point what are these clothes doing back in, in his childhood home? It must be because he suspects his wives of doing all sorts of things like stealing his clothes. But I would suggest, again, there's one word that Rashi is really picking up on. And it's an unnecessary word, and it strengthens the case, that the, 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 the picture that Rashi is painting. And the word is? Ita. Ita. You get it this time. <laughs> the word is Ita, with her. And you see, if you look at the past, it's entirely superfluous. Which were with the house, which were in the house. What's with her in the house? And you can add something. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure how strong this is, but he leaves his clothes with his mother. What was his relationship with his mother? Not great. Now we don't know. We don't know the answer to that. But we do know one thing: that Rivka loved Yaakov. Rivka loved Yaakov. Esau loved, sorry, Yitzchak loved Esau. So a beautiful shot, beautiful thought that we should read that as Yitzchak loved also Esau. Have I told you this before? Did I tell you this the first time? I'll tell you it again. It's so nice. That of course Yitzchak loved Yaakov. Everyone can love Yaakov because he's so lovable. But Yitzchak, the greatness of Yitzchak was he loved also Esau. Uh, he's a Sephora who says, ah, Esau. Anyway, that's, that's not relevant for us right now. We can go back and say that the word Ita meaning Aesop left his clothes with her, is even more remarkable because perhaps he didn't have such a good relationship with her. It doesn't say they let, he left the clothes in his childhood home. It doesn't say he left the clothes in Yitzchak's house. It says he left the clothes with her, feminine, with her, i.e. Rivka, which you might say is extra surprising, given that she didn't apparently love him. And hence Rashi's question, hence Rashi's expression of surprise, that he had many wives. In other words, he had many people to look after his clothes. Sorry, a bit gendered again, but I think that's what it means. And nevertheless, he entrusted the clothes to his mother because he didn't trust his wives. Yes. Any of they stole? How you would use it for idolatry that explained before? I think, good question. It just says he suspected them. I think they would steal them. That's what I think. And uh, I don't think Aesop would be that bothered if they used them for idolatry. Okay, Tet Zion, ve'et orot g'dayi ha'azim hilbisha al yadav, and the skins of the goats she dressed on his hands, ve'al chelkat tzavarav, and on the smooth bit of his neck. So Rashi doesn't actually say anything, but this is obviously part of the response to Yaakov's concern that he is smooth and his brother is hairy, and how's he going to carry that off? So she puts skins on his arms and on his neck. And she gave the tasty dishes and the bread which she had made in the hand of Yaakov, her son. And now the moment comes. He came to his father, and he said, my father, and he said, here I am, mi ata bani. Who are you, my son? 
Now, I'll just mention here that, again, this isn't Rashi, probably. Um, right from the first moment, it looks like the plan is going to become unraveled because the very first question Yitzchak asks is, who are you? So from the very first moment, Yitzchak clearly, and, and I'm not reading anything into this, this is very explicit, is suspicious. Has he got the right son? So just bear that in mind as we go through it, although Rashi doesn't really directly address that. Like, could it be that he's suspicious? It could be that he's blind and anyone who walks into the room, he says, who are you? It could be. It could be. I, I'm sort of reading Pasuk Yudchet, knowing what's coming next. Um, because in Yudchet and, and Kaf and Kavalov, Yitzchak's suspicions are clearly, uh, he's clearly concerned about the identity of the person standing before him. So you're absolutely right. The first words could be, who, who's in the room? But given what comes next, and especially when he says, Miata Bani, so he knows he's a son, just doesn't know which son. Okay. And Yaakov said to his father, If you don't know the Rashi on this, we'll come to it very soon, and it's a classic. And it sounds like he's saying, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have said, a lie to me. Kumna, please rise. Shava, sit. And eat from my uh, hunting in order that your soul will bless me. Ba'avur with Avav here. So strengthening your point about perhaps there's a question I didn't have one before. Okay. What is this very famous Rashi? So Yaakov is asked a direct question and he gives a direct answer. And he says, Anochi Esau Bacharecha. On Rashi says, on the words, Anochi Esau Bacharecha, Anochi Hamevi Lacha, the Esau Hu Bacharecha. I am the one bringing to you, and Esau, he is your firstborn. In other words, Rashi says that Yaakov is punctuating his words like this. Yitzchak says, who are you? And Asa, Yaakov says, Anochi, I, I am I, it's me. Oh, and by the way, I'll tell you something else in case you didn't know, Esau Becharecha. There's a full stop after Anochi, and Esau Becharecha is a two-word sentence on a separate matter. Thus says Rashi. A lot of people are not convinced by this. A lot of people think this is sophistry at its well, worst, I suppose. Because Yitzchak is, sorry, Yaakov is saying, I'm Aesop. So how can Rashi come along and turn it around? So there's a few things going on here. And I think the first thing, there's, there's two things which sort of mention, lead, lead to the same sort of point. Number one, Yaakov is Ishtam. He's the man of integrity. We have a pasuk in Nach, Titein Emet Yaakov. You give truth to Yaakov. Yaakov is the person who is particularly given the middle of truth, and any one of the Avot must be makpid about truth. It's not just a mitzvah, it's a very, very important middle. Uh, unfortunately, it's not always widely understood amongst the so-called religious world of how important it is to tell the truth. How we have a mitzvah, mitzvah shekhar tircha, how the chotem HaKadosh Baruch Hu is emet, the signature of Hashem is truth, they say. So it is no way that Yaakov is going to tell a lie. But let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that and say, there might be some occasions 
when Yaakov will be put in a position when his mother tells him, for instance, that he has to say something which is not true. Um, he's, he's fulfilling the command of his mother. Kibbutz of the aim includes aim. And also, another important point, he knows that he deserves the bracha and he knows that Esau does not. So he knows that something's got to be done. So what he does, and this is what Rashi is doing, is he finds a way to say something which is not true, but in a way which doesn't make him lie. So it's not that, aha, Yaakov's being really clever and he's like twisting the words around. I think, the way I understand this Rashi, is Yaakov is saying he's Esau, for sure. However, he does it in such a way that it, it could be he's telling the truth. He finds a way that even in this moment when he is absolutely obliged to say something that's not true, he still finds a way to do it in a way that is not not true. Choose my words carefully. That's the, uh, I suppose, the first thing. The second thing is the wording is strange. The wording is um, questionable uh, on at least two counts. First of all, why Esau Bacharecha? Why Bacharecha? Why doesn't he just say, who is it? Esau. Why Esau Bacharecha? That's one point. And the other point um, is more subtle. How do you normally say I in Hebrew? Ani. But Yaakov chooses to say Anochi. So we can add to the fact that we know that Yaakov is a man of truth. We also notice that the words are not the normal thing that you would say to answer the question. He's adding extra words, itself becharecha, and he's using anochi instead of the usual ani. Maybe there's something to say on that. So the Maharal says, in Go'ariya, he says, as I said, it's really an idea from, it cannot be sheker, it can't be falsehood. We have to find a way to explain that Yaakov is telling the truth, because that's who Yaakov is. It doesn't make any sense for Yaakov to be telling something that's not true. Um, what about this Anochi? Now, there's a, I'm not, I, I said, what do we normally use for the word I? And you all said Ani. If you look in Perak Lamad Bet, when Aesov um, answers basically the same question, he uses the word Ani. So when one uses the word Ani and one uses the word Anochi, um, there's something to talk about. So the Maharal says, this is a subtle point there, this. The word Anochi can exist as the end of a sentence or the middle of a sentence, unchanged. The word ani cannot. Ani, if it's not the end of a sentence, is with a patach, ani. And if it is the end of a sentence, the end of a clause, uh, before a break, before a pause, it's oni, to you deliberately use an Ashkenazi pronunciation with a, with a comets. So if Yaakov had wanted to use the word ani, he would have been stuck. Because if he wanted to say it in a way that Yitzchak would hear Ani Esav, but he also wanted to use it in a way that we could read it as Ani full stop, Esav Becharecha, it wouldn't have worked. Because Ani full stop would have been Oni full stop, Esav Becharecha. So he uses the word Anochi, which has the interesting grammatical fact that it can be read the same way, whether it's before a pause or not. So, says the Maharal, that's what Rashi has noticed, 
that Yaakov goes out of his way to use a form of words that Dafka could be read in the way that Rashi reads it. So Rashi is showing how Yaakov, as I say, the way I read it is, yes, he's telling Yitzchak that he is Esau. However, he is doing, being very careful to actually utter words which are not not true, because that's what it is to be an ish, uh, a man of truth. So that even when you're in a situation when you absolutely have to lie, you find a way to do it in a way that is truthful. I mean, I said earlier, uh, it's a little hobby horse of mine, that I think we have to be very particular about truth. And I think some people, unfortunately, are, are, are not aware of the importance of this mirror as they should be. But everyone knows there are some occasions when you don't have to tell the truth. For instance, if Reuven runs into the room and says, help, help, Shimon is trying to kill me. And he hides under the desk. And then Shimon runs in the room, brandishing a carving knife and says, have you seen Reuven? The correct answer is no. That's the right thing to do. Um, Yaakov is in a similar situation. But for, for him at that particular moment and that particular seminal moment in Jewish history, he has to pretend that he's Esau. But even when he has, I think, uh, uh, this, this situation isn't discussed in the, in the Sipri Halacha precisely, but I think he had a good justification for not telling the truth, just like if Reuben was hiding under the desk. Nevertheless, because he's Yaakov Avinu, he does it in a way that has an alternative rendering, which is true. And that's what Rashi's giving us, I think. Now, I have to say that uh, the Kitab Kabbalah, not commenting on Rashi per se, but going back to the same source, has a fascinating idea. Uh, it's completely the opposite of what I just said. That he has a whole thesis that he goes through every incident in, in, the, in the encounter between Yaakov and Yitzchak. And he says that Yaakov wanted to be found out. Now, I won't go into the whole thesis because it, it will take us in a whole other direction. But he says that Yaakov wanted to be found out. So, Yaakov, according to this, so you have to forget for a moment everything I just said a few moments ago. Yaakov chooses words which deliberately can be taken both ways. So Yitzchak will hear that. And he will hear Yaakov saying, Anochi Why Anochi not Ani? Why Bacharecha? Why does he need all that stuff? Ah, he's trying to find a way to tell me two things at once. I am Esau and I'm not Esau. Ah, it must be Yaakov not trying to lie. So says Ketav Kabbalah, using the same idea as Rashi in a sense, but with a completely different direction that Yaakov uses words that Yitzchak will work out what Yaakov is trying to do. Okay, um, we've got time for two more Rashis on this Pasuk, they're fairly straightforward. Asiti, so the Pasuk says, Anochi Esav Bacharecha, Asiti Ka'asher Dibarta Eli. I have done what you said to me. Look what Rashi does on the word Asiti. He adds two words. I have done many things like you said to me. What's Rashi adding? There's a problem with the simple word, the words in the Pasuk, before Rashi amends them. Yaakov is saying, I have done what you asked me. What's the problem with that? He wasn't asked you anything. He hasn't, that's a lie. But when you put in, I've done many things that you've asked me, Many things you haven't asked me. Changes the whole tone. It, now, it's based on using Rashi's words, he's not lying. I have done some things that you've asked me. 
And I don't know if Rashi thinks he means like now or in the past, or uh, I was helping with the food, but she didn't directly ask me. But of course, you know, it was a good thing for me to do. By saying Kamadavarim, if you think about it, it works in, in, in our speech as well. Um, I've done what you've asked me. Sounds like I've done everything you've asked me. I've done many of the things you've asked me. Sounds good, huh? But it clearly means I haven't done everything you've asked me. Right? That's why uh, you, you add in order to subtract. So by saying I've done many things that you said to me, he's not lying. Had he left out the Kamadavarim, which Rashi adds in, then he would be saying something that's not true. Okay, and the last comment of Rashi on the word Shava, sit. Now, if you remember, Yaakov said to Yitzchak, Kumna, please get up, Shava, sit. Says Rashi, Loshan may save al hashulcha. It's an expression of reclining at the table. May save like Haseba that we do on Pesach. Reclining at the table. The kach muturgam istachar. And that's why the Targum says istachar, which comes from the root of sachor, which means around, because you sit around a table. But the point is, what, what's the significance of the table? Why isn't Rashi happy just to leave it as sit? And the problem is quite simple, because it doesn't make sense for Yaakov to say to Yitzchak, kum, shows, get up, sit down. What's he doing? He's torturing the old man? There's no logic in him saying, get up and sit down. Maybe it was worse to get up and sit up. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But what works nicely is, as Rashi says, get up and sit at the table. So, yes, he probably was lying down in bed. So now we understand kum and shiva. Get up and sit at the table. Because get up and sit down doesn't make sense. Uh, okay, possibly lie, you were lying down. So sit up. I don't know. I don't know how you'd say sit up. Um, if that's all you wanted to say. But when he says get up and then he says sit down, it doesn't make sense unless he's saying sit at the table. And we will stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.